0: You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome Sasha Talkshablula Point to talk about red paint, the ancestral autobiography of a Coast Salish punk. Sasha Takshablu LaPointe is a Coast Salish author from the Nooksack and Upper Skagit Indian tribes. She received a double MFA in creative nonfiction and poetry from the Institute of American Indian Arts, and she lives in Tacoma, Washington. Thanks so much for being here, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Do you want to start by reading a little something for us?
1: Sure. Um, I'm going to read... Um, a chapter that is towards the end of the book. Um, it's called Dead Man's Cove. Dead Man's Cove. Goonies never say die. I thought about this as I crested the Astoria Bridge. A thick gray fog enveloped my car, the seafoam green metal of the bridge appearing and disappearing. As I came down the other side, Astoria came into view. Goonies never say die but Goonies never had to say colonization or relocation or smallpox. I crossed the large mouth of the Columbia River, the place where the river met the sea. I was on my own treasure hunt, but I wasn't looking for gold. I was looking for answers. My room at the Riverwalk Inn was small and cozy against the dark afternoon. A drizzle slid down the windows as I read family histories and letters wrapped in my grandmother's wool shawl. I burned cedar. I burned sage. The place beyond the window felt charged, connected to me in some way I couldn't name. Pan, my dog, needed a walk. So I ventured out into the town. Astoria was cute. Quaint storefronts promised handcrafted art, nautical themed wall hangings, knits, and things made with shells. I passed by shops and breweries along the wet wood of the boardwalk. Pan obsessed over the lingering scent on a urine-soaked planter box. I left her to it, looping her le- leash around a bike rack before popping into the Gypsy Treasure Chest, a shop claiming to house curios, gemstones, Wiccan spell books, and all things spiritual. Inside, I only found kitschy gifts, imported jewelry, belly dance costumes, tumbled rocks, and tarot cards. I eyed the decks on display. The fairy oracle deck, the goddess deck. I rolled my eyes when I found it. Native American medicine cards. The deck featured a painted wolf circled within a dream catcher on the cover. And aside from my own reflection in the bathroom's fluorescent lit mirror, it was my first native sighting since arriving in Astoria. I turned the box over and read the contents. Raven, bear, badger, and coyote spirit animals all representing different omens. This one means financial stress. This one means emotional blocks. This one means distress and so on. Neither the artist nor the creator of the medicine deck were native. I felt annoyed, but worse than that, I felt lonely. After purchasing a small vial of rose oil, I thanked the silver-haired man wearing a turquoise ring and left. Pan stopped at a patch of grass on a corner. As she walked circles in the small park, I looked out across the water. El Waco was somewhere out there, past the beach and through the trees. Tucked somewhere along that coast was the small fishing village my ancestor called home. After dinner, I watched the Goonies in my hotel room. I watched the film, not as research, but an attempt to cheer myself up on this lonely trip down the coast. I tried to enjoy the truffle shuffle, the baby Ruth and the slick shoes. I couldn't help but wonder why there wasn't a Chinook Goonie, shouldn't there be? I amused myself with visions of my Chinook Goonie with braids and the ability to catch a salmon, but there was no Chinook character in the Goonies, not even a background character. The story took place here on Chinook land, yet my indigenous ancestors were invisible. I went to bed worried about what I might find in El Waco, with pan curled against my feet on the oversized hotel bed, I dreamt of tidal waves, canoes crashing against the rocks and the great bodies of whales slamming into my hotel window. I woke early and downed a cup of hotel coffee. Pan and I hit the road as the sun rose over a glittering Columbia River. Victorian houses dotted the hills and cliff sides overlooking the water. Almost every house in Astoria was Victorian with wraparound porches and rooftops decorated with ornate carvings. I thought they looked like toy houses, dollhouses, something made up and pretend. I closed my eyes at a stoplight and tried to imagine the land here before the ships came, before the settlers made Astoria what it was, quaint, beautiful and white. I drove through the town of Chinook on my way to El Waco and pulled off the road at the first heritage site I encountered. It was an unimpressive patch of land with a few rickety picnic tables dotting the tree line. I let pan off leash and walked to the edge of the park. Through the trees, I stood in awe of the coastal beauty. The tree line gave way to a sparse and rocky shore. Gray stones, crawling waves, and the long branches of trees sweeping over the beach like hands. This was my favorite of nature's intersections, the forest and the sea. To see windswept coastal trees, jagged rocks and crashing waves ignited something in me. It always felt like a memory. It felt like home. Hands sniffed around the base of a wooden sign. The painted placard told of a certain kind of seabird, a big and beautiful creature that called this coastline home. I looked up from reading in a silly moment of hoping that I might spot one circling. Returning to the text, I read on to discover that this particular shore was where Captain Whoever first spotted these massive birds from his ship off coast. The rocky shoreline was treacherous, but the placard honored the seamen for their bravery, for maneuvering their boats carefully to shore. This site was noted for being a favored hunting ground for these prized birds. I watched my dog take a shit in the wet grass. I didn't pick it up. The next site I encountered was Fort Columbia on the river. A sign in the parking lot informed me that if I didn't pay for a day pass, I would receive a big fine. I parked and didn't pay. If a park ranger stopped a Coast Salish girl and her dog wandering the sites of the first settlement on her people's land, would he really give her a fine? I was sure he would, but I wanted the chance to challenge it anyway. To my disappointment, we wandered the abandoned fort undisturbed. It was a bust, just a bunch of sterile wooden buildings old and empty, historical facts printed on signs faded by the sun. The white men who once lived here were barbers, musicians, and farmers, not only soldiers. This was a community. On my way out, I stopped at the massive wooden sign hanging close to the entrance. In bold letters, it read, Fort Columbia. Here was the home of the Chinook Indians and their great chief, Comcomley. Was. The word caught in my throat like a cough, like something you try to swallow. They once lived here. That was the only information about my ancestors provided in the large park and all of its preserved buildings, its old guns and bunkers. Just 13 words, that's all they would spare. The Chinook people did not have some wild adventure like the Goonies. There was no fantastic and quirky way to save their beloved home. There was no cave of whimsical booby traps or skeleton pianos to conquer. No pirate ship loaded with gold would keep them here. There wasn't much to the town of El Waco, a couple of tourist shops, a fish and chips place, a cannery. The Heritage Museum was run by an ancient white woman. She smiled when she greeted me, gave me a a walking map of El Waco, and left me to wander the corridors and the rooms of the small museum. I saw sepia-toned portraits of Chinook people, canoes and paintings of plank houses, A young woman in a portrait behind glass wore an almost identical pair of dentalium shell earrings to the ones that I had on that day. I ran my fingertips along the delicate ends of the white shells down to the antique beads and traced the glass where the woman's earrings hung. We wear them because we are loved. Tanya's words echoed in my head. I visited the town's small library next. There I discovered that Kamsha and Captain James Johnson were considered the first family of El Waco. In an old historical society reference book, I learned the captain had died at sea. That's all it said, Captain James Johnson died at sea. Next, I read about a place called Dead Man's Cove. I knew I had to go. The trail that cut through the woods and along the coastline was covered in moss and wet stones. The consistently damp earth smelled like home. Pan and I made our way toward the scenic lookout. Tourists passed us along the way, smiling and saying things like, what a pretty dog and it's a beautiful day. Couples hiking together hurried by. Families with children on smartphones took up too much space on the trail. I smirked at the sight of hikers loaded down with heavy packs, camelbacks of water and special hiking sticks. Such gear was unnecessary. It was just a trail. Maintained and well kept. Through the density of the forest came the sound of waves against rocks. Pan and I quickened our pace. The tree line opened up and revealed a steep cliffside. Beneath the drop off waves roared against massive black rocks jutting out from the blue depths of the cove. Dead Man's Cove was picturesque, the water a dark, clean blue. Sword ferns and trees grew along the climbing stones. The water raged. Sending tall waves and sprays of sea foam into the trees. This part of the coast, where the Columbia meets the ocean, is known as the graveyard of the Pacific. Over 2,000 ships have gone under here. Beneath the beauty of the surface lie pile upon pile of wrecked ships, a cemetery of drowned men, decaying boats, nameless explorers. Perhaps this was where the captain met his demise right here in Dead Man's Cove. I watched the ocean beat itself against the beach and said a silent thank you. Perhaps the ocean had been looking out for my ancestors as it claimed one ship after another. Perhaps it was trying to keep them safe. The men who sailed here brought disease and gold and alcohol. They brought treaties and names for places already named. They crossed an ocean to climb these shores and the water pulled them under when it could to keep the land as it was, even if only for a moment longer. I paid my respects not to the men lost at sea, but to the sea itself, the power beneath the waves. Thank you so much
0: for reading that portion for me. It was one of my favorite parts of the book, for sure.
1: (laughs) Me me too. I I think when, when I can talk about the Goonies and make it light when I can, you know? (laughs)
0: well and it was like I had never I haven't seen the Goonies in years but again like you growing up in the place like where it took place being like that is I know those places I know where this is happening and for it to but also knowing the like true version of that place as well it there's a lot more to it it sits with you a lot more so it was such an interesting thing to read as someone who had just watched a movie a few times and not thought about the place that they were showing you which is like many places that people are trying to show us (laughs) and with this book like in particular it's you talk about how you've spent so much time like writing it and I don't know if it was just me sort of feeling it as you were reading it as well but it must be hard to continue to like this is a book that you you've written all this down and now you're going to continue to live with it as you continue to live with, um, all of the experiences that you have had. And as you continue to heal the way humans work, we to heal, we have to dig and we have to like scrape and claw and get through all those things. And now you've written it down and it exists (laughs) in a place, which is a feat all its own. Um, and now you get to continue talking about it, which I'm sure is so much fun. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right
0: <laughs> so what what is that sort of process been like like how long did you spend um, putting this book together? did you were you always writing down stories about your life as they happened or as you processed them and worked through them or did it kind of become a point in time? Would you talk about a little bit in the book where things kind of came to a head and you were like, I need to I need to figure this out and writing it down became a way to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the process of writing this book in particular, um, was so, so different than what I had experienced before. Um, I mean, I know that I, I talk about it in the book a bit, but, um, before this book, um, I spent my grad program working on an entirely different book a very long memoir I got I think it was like 400 pages it was ridiculous (laughs) but and I spent like a couple years and just a lot of um like I worked on that book for so long I think I even started it while I was still in my undergrad and then brought it into my MFA program um and it became my thesis and by the time I left grad school I had this like 400 and something pages um memoir called Little Boats and in doing that, um, that first memoir was, um, I think what sort of got me to red paint um, because in writing it, I, I sort of dislodged things in me. Um, mm-hmm. I went into those, those memories and began sort of excavating and, and digging up all this old stuff. I wasn't really prepared for it. And I think that um, if you're diving into memoir like that and uh, specifically traumatic memories and experiences without the proper tools like i think that it was pretty reckless and i mean i was proud of the thing i had done right i'd spent all the like 3 years writing this book and um in doing so um was diagnosed with ptsd started having a really tricky time but, like not being prepared to kind of unpack these these memories that just kept coming out like a russian nesting doll i'm like oh here's another one here's another one here's another one <laughs> and um, When it was all said and done, I had this completed manuscript that people were interested in. Like I had several agents and publishers that were like kind of, ooh, we want to read this. We want to read this. And it was the same thing over and over. I'd have someone interested, either an editor or an agent, and they'd read 30 pages and they'd be like, we really like this. We want to read the whole thing. And the same thing kept happening where they they would get to the end after initially being so interested and they would say, you know, we really love your voice. We love... Um, you know, your story, but this story just isn't it. It got rejected over and over. And I was so confused because people would be really interested and then be like, ah, like something was wrong, right? Something was not, was not in it. And um, I think after a year of that happening, just continuously, I took a huge break. I just stopped. And I mean, on top of that, um, having to like, you know, do the work of, you know, being diagnosed with PTSD and having um uh anxiety disorder and all of these things, it became too much and I just like put everything away. Like I just stopped and I, I think that, that's when I joined the band and like kind of said, you know mm-hmm. what, I'm just gonna wait tables and bartend at this like punk pizza place. And I just took a huge <laughs> break from writing and like um joined a punk band, went on some tours and was like, you know, maybe the writing thing just isn't gonna happen. Um, but what brought me to red paint, um, was that entire experience, um, realizing that I had sort of, um, excavated these traumatic memories and they literally got into my body and like, were making me sick. Like I was having, um, PTSD flashbacks. I was hospitalized for asthma and panic attacks and fainting. And I was sort of confronted with this you have a different story to tell. And it, it isn't Little Boats. It's like a whole, like I had to write Little Boats to get to Red Paint. But in right, and and then once I started writing Red Paint, like those stories, like, I think in my process of healing, um, I kept going back to these stories, like my ancestor, Kamsha, like the stories my mom would tell me, the moments with my grandmother, like I kept returning to these women and their stories. And I realized it was through learning and discovering more about their lives and their strength that that's that was where the healing was for me and when i started that like red paint happened really quickly i think i wrote it in like six months um i mean obviously there was a long process of edits published <laughs> after that but it just kind of poured out of me because i think that it was a, a, absolutely a story of healing and an active one um I don't even know if I answered your question. I'm so sorry, but that was that was how I wrote. I'm not it.
0: sure. I'm not sure I even remember what my question was. <laughs> I was just enjoying listening to you <laughs> tell me about this process because that was another thing about like the title to you. It's an ancestral autobiography, and I feel like I had this was a book where I hadn't really. I may have seen that that like title used before or those words together, but I wasn't sure how that was going to play out as I was reading and and that was something that was so beautiful about it, is it really, it is not just your autobiography. It is like so much of your life and the things that have happened to you are tied up in those stories of your ancestors as well. And um, I had asked you before we started to, I was like, could you read about Kamcha? Because like that story, her story as well, and the fact that you're even, that you were even able to, go to the place where she lived and to see like where she was and to see her because you did um like that that i think that was one of my favorite parts of the book to be able to sort of hear about what that kind of opportunity um offers you when you're trying to heal but also like not only that it's an opportunity that it's a it's difficult it's so it's such a hard and traumatic thing to choose to do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering, and that kind of goes into a lot of the a big theme of the book is um your mom and a lot of other people telling you that you were spirit sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that factored into all of the ways that your ancestors were spirit sick as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: um, there's a lot of this, a lot of conversation within the book just talking about how all these women in your family were so sick and that there's like, there, there was so much brokenness there. And then that idea of just constantly questioning that and having to sit with it. It's one thing if you feel that way about yourself, but then when you have everyone constantly telling you that Mm -hmm. um, it's a really hard thing to, to move through the world with. And um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you how you kind of got to these different points where you decided it was time to start like, or how you were going to move out of this sickness and move through it and what you, what it kind of
1: looked like for you. Yeah. um, I'm so glad you brought up um, Kamsha too. She was a big part of that for me. I think like that, getting to a point of healing, I really just kind of fell into her story and She was someone that I had been hearing about since I was a kid, you know, Um, and then to actually go to that space and and see her and see where she lived. I mean, she's such a badass. Like when I learned more about her, when I saw a portrait of her and she's just this gorgeous, Mm -hmm. like badass, like strong, she has this like face that is like kind of no nonsense. Um, she's amazing. Uh, my friend Ryan actually was like, when are we going to write a book just about Kamsha? And I was like, oh my God, that's a great idea. Um, I mean, that's hmm. actually a question I had for you as well, but. <laughs> oh, let's put a pin in that and come back to it. Yeah. Yes. Um, but <laughs> okay. For me, um, the more I sort of dove into her story. And I mean, I know in the book, I, I only go that one time, but I, I returned to El Waco, um several times in the process of writing this book because something was like, I was drawn to that space and um, I was drawn to her. And I mean, I, at one point I camped alone with my dog for four days on Cape Disappointment <laughs> like where Dead Man's Cove was just like, yeah, it was it was such an immensely empowering um, thing to go and and be as close to like where she lived and all the things that she survived. And learning more and more about her, I was, and it's aligning with like, um, when I was fainting, like I literally, like it was such a strange phenomenon. Like, yes, I have asthma. Yes, I had anxiety um, disorder and PTSD, but I was literally fainting, like just dropping. And we couldn't, I went to the doctor several times and like, I had to wear heart monitors for like 30 days. I had like EKGs, and all kinds of tests. And they were just like, we cannot we cannot explain this we don't know and learning about Kamsha and my mom was like all of our like sort of family histories she was only 35 when she died and it was for unknown causes like medical like she died on land not um I think in the book I mentioned that uh some bit of historical information just assumed that she died with her husband her like husband yes yeah. And my mom was like, oh, absolutely!" because when I found that bit of information, I called my mom, like kind of just in a rage, like, wait a minute, what? And my mom was like, oh, absolutely not. Like um, she died and they said it was like uh, mysterious causes. And I couldn't not think of that, like aligning Mm -hmm. with my own, like physical experience of fainting. And I thought of her and I thought of, um, it was kind of just this intersect, this moment where I was like, I need to do something. I'm not okay. And I felt like, I mean not to get woo, but I felt this moment of like my ancestors being like, yo, you're not, you're not good. You're not okay. Like you You need to make a big change. And it was painful. I think, um, a lot of that had to do with making the decision to, um, change my life and get out of the home that I was in and all of that. Um, but that was a turning point for me. Whereas I think in the the previous manuscript in Little Boats, I had this neat, tidy little ending. Even my my professor, um, who is so amazing, Melissa Phoebos, called me out on it. She was like, "What's <laughs> this ending? You have like almost a fairy tale Cinderella kind of bullshit ending where you know you get married and you're everything's healed and happy now." And she was like, "I'm calling you out on this. This is not a, this is not your ending," and she was absolutely right to think that um, whenever there's, um, trauma, whether it be like generational historical trauma or lived trauma, the idea that you're, you're all better now you're healed, um, put a bow on it. It's done isn't realistic. Like for me, like healing and kind of like confronting my trauma is like something I engage in the act of like, you know, actively healing and being better is something I engage in all the time. And when things sort of came to a head for me and I gone to the hospital several times for fainting that's when I just started listening and I was like okay you have to make big changes and sort of accepting that um, it's it's work it's like you know sort of constant work and not in a bad mm-hmm. way but like I think accepting that was a huge huge relief and like made a big change for me I hope I answered that I've had so much coffee and I feel a bit rambly <laughs>
0: well I'm also you you absolutely answered it and I'm also trying to um to like chat in conversation but also ask questions because it it is such a conversational like book too there's so much um it's I think it's something that we see a lot of specifically with Indigenous writing is people are so unfamiliar with anything um <laughs> basically anything at all that uh that when we read stories about or written by indigenous people we expect them to be um all-encompassing and that if this is the story that if this was Sasha's life this has been every Indian's life since the beginning of time <laughs>
1: it's such bullshit you're absolutely right
0: and that's and this and that was a a really big reason why I loved this book so much is because it, I mean, someone could pick it up and, and think that, but that's not, I mean, it's also very clear that it's not because Kamcha is your ancestor. She is not everyone's ancestor. And there are people that we have been connected to throughout time that have made us who we are and whose lives have influenced the way that that our lives have played out and, um, connected us to like the other people that we meet and the experiences that we've had. And I loved, um, the one, the title of this book and the, the things that made me think about in terms of the red paint were like feeling entitled to something because like, you know, and it could be, it's anything like, oh, my, you know, my parents or my grandparents did this. So I'm, I also have to do this. So it going two ways. I have to do this. Like I have to be strong enough to wear the red paint. It's my responsibility. Um, Like I owe it to everyone that has worn it before me and the people who have danced before me. And also like, so feeling the weight of that and not knowing if you are strong enough to do it, but then also feeling like I get to do this because it's mine and all those times that you came to your mom sort of ready for it and she was like you're not ready for it yet. Mm-hmm. Um and and feeling sort of upset about that because no matter even if you felt like you were a mess and you knew you were a mess you're like doesn't matter how messy I am like this is this doesn't have anything to do with me specifically it's just like a family thing and I get to do it. Um and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that weight and responsibility of feeling owed things, um, which again, I think is a very, it's like a very common thread within the indigenous community being owed so many things like land and like your culture being completely forgotten about and also buried. Mm -hmm. Um, And just so much of that, like being something that you're owed, but also having to continue to fight for when the opportunity has been consistently taken away as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I want to go back to an earlier part of this question where you, you know, you're saying when people pick up uh, indigenous, you know, like a, a native memoir, native novel, and sometimes have the expectation that there's this like, uh, across the board kind of pan Indian, like they're all going to be the same, This expect there's an expectation on it of like, what native identity is. I think that's always been something that really pissed me off. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as a Coast Salish person who like, I knew that I wanted to write about my identity as a Coast Salish person, but also my identity as like, weirdo little like gothy punk freak who ran away from home early and like Mm -hmm. found music and fell in love with music and you know this idea that like okay you're from the pacific northwest uh you're gonna write a memoir like there are these things this expectation of like all right you gotta have some cedar trees you gotta have your grandma and some salmon there's like these i mean i have all those things because they're inherently really important to me but this idea that like that's all i can write about right like write about you know um canoes and the longhouse and it's like those things are (laughs) important to me of course but I was like no I want to write about hitchhiking and basement shows and like you know going on tour um so this idea that there's a pushback from me for sure and I um to like write about like thinking of this all-encompassing identity where it's like no like I don't know that was a super when you when you spoke about that I got like kind of like fired up because I was like yeah Yeah. like like the anti that like I I want to write about so many different things um but going back to your question about um I think things that are owed or things that we have to fight for um I mean that's so heavy and I feel I mean as a Native person I feel that every day like every like when I I mean that bit about walking around the the Fort Columbia like I have that kind of um sort of Uh, almost aggressive like if a park ranger would have been like hey like I would have been like excuse me like you know that exists in (laughs) me um, that's something that I move through the world with um, every day and feeling like in entitled to wear the red paint or that I have to wear it for all of these reasons Um, and that was a really complex thing for me because like you mentioned like I I went to my mom several times you know when I go to my mom they're like oh I want to wear it for the pride parade we're we're marching with the two-spirit flag and I I thought my mom was gonna like slap me upside the head she was like what are you talking (laughs) about you can't do that and I was like what you know and kind of learning and growing and being like oh um and when I finally did approach her I was sure she would say no again Right. I was like, I'm going on tour with my like, weirdo punk band. Um, and but I, you know, I explained to her what was going on. She knew what was going on. She had witnessed a lot of it. And then when she returned with the red paint and was like, I've been waiting to give this to you for so long. It was like, this is the moment like where I recognize that you are like, seeking healing and like seeking to like connect with that part of your lineage in an appropriate way. Um, and that meant a lot to me. Um, and also I think I point out in the book, like I am not going to dance in the longhouse. That's not like part of my story, but, um, I come from, from, um, a lineage that did do that. And that's in me. And I think that the idea of like, um, like, do i have to get permission absolutely right like i had to ha- like get permission to even um publish this book you know i had to let mm-hmm. uh, my family read it um and not for like any reason about like oh, what'd you say about me it was literally about like yeah um, if i was uh, and uh, you know there were several um chapters in the book that my mom edited and she absolutely was like you can't write about that you don't come from that you come from this um like certain details of longhouse ceremony and stuff she was like like speaking of being entitled to something or whatever um she was like oh mm-hmm. that would be considered a huge disrespect if you put that in the book and I 100% listened to her and you know to kind of drove my editor nuts I think at times they were like <laughs> why, why can't you put this in or you're being really vague about this and I was like do you want to get my mom on the phone <laughs> do you want to talk to her <laughs> right? and so this idea of like um things that are passed down to us or things that we, we live with as like, you know, native people, like in our family, certain stories, certain songs, certain, um, but it's like, there's a responsibility there as well. And so, I don't know, I think I got so derailed. I'm so sorry. Do, as a native person, do I feel entitled to some things? 100%, but not, <laughs> um, not when it comes to like disrespecting or pushing boundaries within my community. But when oh, I walk nice. through a park and I don't want to pay, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> um and then so much of this book and putting it together and the time spent on it we've talked about were like discoveries so many things that you learned about yourself or you had to go searching for were there any discoveries that like you didn't talk about in the book or things that kind of just came up even if they were fun like little tidbits of information things you learned about yourself that you love and practices that you've continued after starting to do them during this process um, or things that you learned about your family history that weren't necessarily things needed to be in this book, but that you still carry with you now?
1: I feel like I got this question last night at the reading, um, <laughs> but not, I, I really like your spin on it though. You're like, also fun things. I'm like, yes.
0: I yeah, it. not like, cause what you learned and like what you discovered are, you know, in the book. But
1: mm-hmm. like
0: that's and that's what we're gonna have people read. So we're not gonna talk about it now.
1: Okay, right, right. Spoiler. <laughs> um, like I already gave. No spoilers. spoilers. Okay.
0: <laughs> but yeah, <clears throat> like things that, like either uh, you know, a practice because you you had to, like you said, we when people are healing, we one of the biggest things is accepting that it doesn't end. <laughs> it doesn't ever end, and so, like. So much of this part of your story is the process of healing and uh, finding a way to more lightly walk through the world. And I'm sure that there's plenty of things that um, you came across, like rose quartz, for one,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, carrying it with you. So, like that is something from the book. Spoilers for everyone. But um, <laughs> other other practices and things that have helped you continue to heal. Since this has come together,
1: yeah, <clears throat> I'm like combing through my answers to be like no spoilers. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I'd say one that comes up for me um, that I still engage with, you know, um, all the time, and I think that it's something really empowering for me and like fun for me, also terrifying. There's nothing quite like it. Um, but performing with, um, a band on stage, it's so different than doing readings. Uh, I mean, I'm terrified of all of it, but, but, um, like doing readings, doing like a spoken word performance or getting up and, you know, reading, um, poetry and stuff is one thing, but, um, having the chance to like perform and like, and it's not just about, it's not, I don't know. Okay. Now I'm going to ramble, but, um, when the first couple shows we did with the the current project I'm in now I was like such a mess like shaking felt like I was gonna nervous barf was like oh my god I hate this why do I do this and then we'd get out there and do our thing and get weird and like you know have fun and yell and sing off key and just have a great time um afterwards it always felt like I was like this little wrung out washcloth like it felt good and there was something about the the combination of being both totally terrified to do it and forcing yourself to do it and then feeling like a total badass at the end even if you sucked right you were terrible um so I think that pushing myself to do something that scares me in that way in a good way not like I don't want to go dark Mm -hmm. but um that's in the book but Mm um kind of pushing myself to to do something that even though I'm like terrified of it and kind of like shaking in my boots um, it's really empowering and i feel like i mean my band just played a show last week in portland and we you know played shows before but it's scary every time and i like you know yeah. walked like up on the stage and looked out at this like portland crowd and was like oh shit like that feeling is super good for my healing i think you know it reminds yeah. me that like nothing is going to kill me like you know like that i can do it and I mean, something will kill me, but you know what I mean? Like this terrifying yeah. thing isn't going to kill me. And from someone who experienced anxiety in a way that I was like going to the ER and stuff being like, oh, this might kill me though. So to be reminded that like, eh, it's not going to though, you're fine. And for me, um, yeah. that's music um, for sure. So that's one thing. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of right now.
0: <laughs> I also, I was also curious if you, um, if you had a, um, like a playlist that you either put together while you were writing the book or one that kind of uh, either while you were writing or like after you were writing, um, I'm sure you might have since you're such a music person.
1: Yeah, I did. Actually, I'm I'm glad you asked because um, I was thinking about thing, and this is something I want to do too, but like, well, maybe they don't come up as much as the songs, but like songs just are, come up in this book so much where- yeah. I had so many um I think in earlier drafts every chapter opened with almost like an epigraph right but it was song lyrics
0: mm-hmm. for everyone
1: yeah. and my editor was like this is a nightmare you can't do this, this is copyright." <laughs> like, it was everything from like pj harvey and nick cave uh-huh. to like, bikini kill and like god I think I even had nine inch nails you know to pay homage right <laughs> to my little dorky goth teen baby self but um throughout the book, it was like every chapter opened with lyrics first until my editor was like, absolutely not. Um, but music still is like a thread, right? It's like a through line for the story. And so I always knew that I wanted to make um, a mix, like make a playlist of all the songs that kind of show up. So I was already thinking of that. And then um, the folks at Counterpoint and Catapult were like, hey, do you want to make a mix, like a, a playlist for this? And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I'm already doing that. Like, I'm, So they yeah. had me make one um, several weeks ago. And so, yes, there's absolutely a red paint playlist. And um, it's funny too, because well, when I listen to it, it's like not cool. You know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> the, like my stick fans that I'm into, I have some of the nerdiest stuff on this playlist, but it's honest and it's like true to- yeah like little teenage baby Sasha, and then like also adult Sasha, like it, it, it sort of does both of like, kind of mirroring the arc of the story and also songs that pop up when I was writing that I was listening to like currently. So there's like songs from my childhood, songs that absolutely represent um, different moments, you know, um, and then also songs that I was listening to over and over while I was writing. Um, So that playlist does exist. I don't know what CounterPoint is going to do. They said they were going to make it public or like promote it or like put it out there somewhere and they haven't yet, Yeah, but there is a red paint playlist.
0: Okay. Well, um, we can cut this part out, but I will be asking Kira about it and maybe we can put it in our show notes and maybe we can be the ones to do it with. That would be
1: so awesome. (laughs) It's funny because I'm a little (laughs) bit nervous about it. Like, it's not cool. There is some cool stuff on there, of course, but it's like, there's some, nerdy like i you know i don't have awesome like cool guy taste all the time i'm also very sentimental <laughs> and like just like yeah this weird song from the crow soundtrack needs to be on there because when i was 14 <laughs> it really got me through it you know well that's what i mean there's a
0: playlist that uh that we play at the store sometimes that someone showed us and it's called a uh, 2000 2010 urban outfitters time machine <laughs> <laughs>
1: It is, is
0: yeah it is like when it comes on we know like because it's just those songs that you're like I haven't heard this song in 10 years and but it is it, it was playing when I drove in the car down that one street and it got me there and that whole thing so it is it is no matter what song it is they that's the power of music as, to get woo about music,
1: <laughs> totally. Yeah. Like I'm such a like nostalgia junkie. I'm sentimental. Mm-hmm. I get all you know. So, I mean, I feel like there's some great songs on the playlist, and then there's also ones that are just so specific to a certain moment in a certain relationship or something that I'm like, yep, this one needs to be on there. So it'll be interesting to hear people <laughs> people's response <laughs> to be like, this playlist is all over the place. You know what I mean? It doesn't have like a thread or like a theme or like oh this song you know really goes into the next one really well it's like no this is a story (laughs) this is my story yeah
0: Um. well and that's I mean that's the same thing to bring it back to our our conversation about uh how not one indigenous story is all indigenous stories is this playlist one story is not for everybody one playlist is not for everybody this is Sasha's life in music from counting crows to medusa stare and oh, on and on
1: <laughs> don't know if counting crows made it on there but i appreciate the call out um i know it'll be funny to be like oh some people are definitely going to be skipping around right oh no like skip that song skip that song there's
0: specific instructions like you cannot skip you cannot shuffle you must listen from song <laughs> one to the end <laughs> And then I, I will come back to uh, what we put a pin in um, a little bit earlier. What, um, what are you working on now? What do you, you want to write about? You've had some people ask if you were going to write more ancestral stories, Mm -hmm. maybe specifically about Comcha.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, When and my friend Ryan was like, "You need to write an entire book about Kamsha. I was like, "Damn it, you're right." Um, but I feel like that's that's down the road. Like, I'm not ready for that. Like, because I want to yeah. do that woman justice. And mm-hmm. um, but that's definitely something that I to I want to do someday. But right now, I'm working on a collection of essays um, that I think several of them um, already exist in the world and are published. Um, the the Thunder Song um, that I think was in Vogue about my grandmother and her um, commissioning a symphony um, and sort of aligning that with the protests and the pandemic um, and my experiences with that. Um, There's another one, like I have several essays that are published and I'm working on a collection and it's very near to being complete. It's very close. Um, uh, Also Rose Quartz is a collection of poems that's coming out with milkweed in exactly like one year, which I thought was really cool. They were like, we're gonna publish this a year after Red Paint. And I'm like, that's awesome. So there will be a collection of poems and um, a collection of essays where I'm sort of just like thinking about and examining things, everything from like decolonizing my diet as a Salish person. I hang out with a lot of vegans. Um, I've eaten vegan (laughs) for a a long time, Um, but sort of confronting that I, I come from salmon people and we literally mm-hmm. have salmon ceremony every year and to think about being like a, a little shithead vegan and telling my uncle like no I'm <laughs> not eat that salmon was so wrong so it's like it's about food essays about um like decolonizing my diet also decolonizing like my relationships the way that I love um intimacy all of that stuff um you know just essays about me like or where I'm just kind of like thinking about stuff and rambling about it, but hopefully they're good. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Well, if they are anything like Red Paint, I am sure that they will be, and I look forward to all of those things to come, and we will definitely have them for all of our listeners and readers at Skylight, and for now, though, everyone can grab their copy of Red Paint, the ancestral autobiography of a Coast Salish punk. At Skylight Books, they are on the shelf now, or you can order one online at skylightbooks.com. Again, today my guest was Sasha Takszabloulapoint, and we were so so grateful to have her. Thanks for
1: chatting with me. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.